First week we looked at the nature of our battle. It's the battle for the mind and it's the fight of faith. All right? It's the fight of faith to continue to believe and obey and trust the Lord. And uh, last week we looked at uh, our strength. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty strength. And um, today we're looking at our enemies. I said a little bit about our enemies already, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, or more logically, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Uh, most of what I'm going to be saying this morning is about the devil, our uh, unseen spiritual enemies. That being the case, let me just make a little statement of defiance right now, that if anything goes wrong with the recording, I will sit in my office on Tuesday and preach it all again into my computer. Done it before, I'll do it again. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Lord Jesus, we do honor you and worship you. The name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. The whole of humanity brought to that great judgment assizes. Whether your people or not, every knee must bow. So we bow our heads and our hearts now and pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll give us the Holy Spirit to help us and inspire us so that we are equipped to live the life we're called to, to walk the walk we're called to, to fight the fight of faith and to begin to win and overcome in the battle for our mind. Amen. Let's read Ephesians 6 again. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take the shield of faith and with it you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. And stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. So as we begin to think about our enemies, I need to remind you that our battle... I've already said this. Our battle is not with one enemy, we're with three key enemies. We have an internal enemy, the flesh, our fallen human nature, our appetites, our desires. God gave us good desires, but they are warped by sin. And we fulfill them illicitly, uh, rebelliously, sinfully. There's nothing wrong with an appetite for food, but if you become a glutton, you've warped your appetite for food. Um, and so on. We have an external enemy, something that oppresses us from outside of ourselves, which is the world. Godless human society, 
with its values, with its philosophies, with its, with its uh, commercialism, with its sexuality, with you know, overtly sexual kind of behavior and images and language and all this. But chiefly in that is human pride and ambition. So I've given these some A's today, appetites and ambition. And then we have an infernal enemy, not because he operates out of hell now, but because that's his destiny, as we'll see in a while. The devil, Satan and all evil spirits. We are open to and we are affected by, at times, demonic assaults. We're attacked. We're got at. By the way, there's a, there's a, a, a saying that um, I didn't put in this week's notes. I'll say it for another week. But let me give it to you now. The devil doesn't attack you because you're weak, but because you have a purpose. Amen. Amen. You're doing something right. That's why he's attacking us. Thank you. You're doing something you don't like. <laughs> so these three I mentioned in Ephesians 3, verse 2, verse 1 and 3, in, in that order, world, flesh and devil. And that's a very historic, traditional way of expressing the kind of conflict, the kind of battle that we as Christians are in. It's not you can opt into it or opt out of it. It it gets you. I said it the first week. In this battle, if you're not a combatant, you don't know you're in it, you're probably a casualty. You've forgotten why you're there. The three things were at work in the temptations of Jesus. Jesus appealed to Jesus' appetite. He was hungry. In his flesh, in his humanity, he was hungry. Then he appealed to his reputation with the world. You know, if you cut yourself down, all the world will see that. And, you know, it's like it was about ambition. It was about pride. And Jesus turned him down. By the way, Jesus quoted scripture. We'll come to that in a few weeks' time. Then Jesus offered him success if he worshipped him, the devil. If he would serve the devil. And Jesus denied that too. So the world, the flesh, and the devil are there in the temptations of Jesus. Let, Let me remind you something about the world. I didn't mention this before. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world. That's this godless human society and its values and its principles. All the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For what? Everything that belongs to the world. Now, my version, the Holman Christian, has lusts here, but lust, we, we get confused with lust because we only think of sex. So let me put in desires, because that's more general and it's really what the Bible says. Everything that belongs to the world, the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, you see it, you want it. The pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its desires is passing away. It's all going to end. In, in the long run, who cares about Brexit? It's all going to stop. Yeah. Amen. But the one who does God's will remains forever. So those three are, of course, interconnected. You, there are no firewalls, to use an IT expression, between them. Look at this scripture again to Peter. By these, both his, his wisdom and his grace and his power, he's given us very great and precious promises so that by them you may share in the divine nature, escape the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. It's only the world would not have an appeal to us if there wasn't an appetite for it to appeal to. You'd walk around oblivious to it. Really? What, what's that? I don't know. What, what is that? But because there is an appetite in us, there is fallen humanity, flesh in us, the world has its appeals. So we're taken in by the adverts and the picture and the slogan. 
political campaign, whatever else. Put on the full armor of God so you may stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting other human beings. This is not, you know, we might really, really dislike some human beings. I can name a few right now that are in pub- very public figures in the world. And I just, oh. But our battle is not actually against human beings. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Behind even powerful people are the philosophies and deceits that rule the world. And they, in turn, are driven by powerful forces of darkness. Look at this scripture with me in Colossians, which is a parallel letter to Ephesians. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. That's the world's thinking. According to human tradition, it's what everybody says. It's, it's, it's what's accepted as common sense. Everybody knows that's true. What's the matter with you? No, it isn't. And those human traditions and those philosophies are according to the elemental spirits of the world. Things you can't name. They're just at work and not according to Christ. Let me give that to you as an illustration. The world runs on philosophy and empty deceits, all sorts of isms, which are according to human tradition, teaching, you know, just, just uh, folklore. Everybody knows that's the way it works. Not if, by, not if God says differently. And those values and those philosophies are fed and nurtured and promoted by the elemental spirits, evil spirits at work in this world. Christian is founded on one thing. It's actually one person, Christ. And then what he says. Him and his word. We're not founding our lives upon the muck that this world throws around, but only on Jesus. In some places, the work of the devil may be more obvious. It's, it's witchcraft, superstition, and so on. But in the West, the influences are through the philosophies that people think are quite normal. Consumerism, humanism, scientism, secularism, and then human degradation through things like abortion and gender confusion. But listen, that scripture we just looked in Colossians, further down, Paul carries on. You, you Christians have been filled by him who is the head of all rule and authority. He's greatly far above these things. And he fills you. And then in verse 20, if Christ, with Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of this world, you were cut off from the force and the influence and the authority of the wicked ones, as if you were still alive in the world, why do you submit to their regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. We're not under those values. Even those there, it mentions particularly Judaistic values. We're not under them. We're cut off from them because we're in Christ. Jesus is head above all. We can live as those who are dead to the world because we have died with Christ and been raised with Christ and Christ lives in us. We're, verse 10, filled with him. 
When we reject and counter the values and philosophies, the precepts and teachings of this world, we are actually also standing against the evil spirits that are at work behind those things. But we're not diving in there to have a dust-up with them directly. We, we push back through the thinking, the strongholds. What other people claim is obvious, so everyone should accept. We scrutinize against Scripture. We measure it, test it. And what does not have God's light in it, we reject as darkness. If it even seems to be in the shadows, it's, shadows have darkness. No, we won't even deal with shadows, thank you much. Just the light. Just the light. Who then are our enemies here in Ephesians 6? It's just an illustration, so you can look at it as we look at that. We battle against rulers, authorities, world powers of this darkness, spiritual forces of evil. Well, either that scripture is saying the same thing four different ways, or those are four different things, or maybe it's two groups of two, two ways of saying two things. And I go with the last option, and I'll try and explain briefly why. Oops, sorry, go down. Behind those, yeah, that's the wrong place. Behind those words are Greek words, of course. And uh, we have earthly and demonic powers. The first two words, rulers and authorities, generally, most often in the New Testament, refers to human authorities. People who have responsibility or, or oversight, kings, princes, and so on. In Paul's time, the human authorities were the Roman emperor, the senate, their delegated authorities, such as the army, and then there were local kings and governors like Herod and Philip and so on, including the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. And Jesus, firstly, and then his church, were opposed by such human authorities. It's part of the narrative of the book of Acts. In the text below, the, the authorities are human, not demons. It refers particularly to the Jerusalem authorities. I haven't put it in my notes. Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 2. Yet among the mature we impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. It's not their wisdom who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age, and actually when Paul uses that language, he's really talking about the, 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 the leaders of Judaism at that time. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Demons did not crucify Jesus, human authorities did. It's clear from the New Testament the early apostles' church and the early church were often in conflict with those human authorities. They imprisoned them, they beat them, and so on. First with the Jewish ones and the Roman ones. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against some human authorities because of the way they yield that authority. And that's been the case throughout hum most of church history. The saints generally live under the rule of unbelievers. And the saints foolishly think if they can only get a Christian into the White House or, or, or Number 10, everything will change. It doesn't. Because the whole authority system is not godly. The kingdom we serve is not the kingdom of this world. I'm quoting Jesus there. The second pair of statements there. The, the world powers of darkness and, the, and, and, and spiritual forces of evil are clearly talking about that which is immaterial. They're not, they're not human authorities. They are spiritual authorities. 
Demonic powers, darkness, evil spirits. Our battle is against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. That's where I need to give most of my time to this morning. So let me talk now about the origin of the devil and demonic powers. Originally, both the devil and demons were angels, like the other angels, heavenly servants and messengers. But the word angel and demon in our Bibles, our English Bibles, are untranslated words. The word angel is Greek angelos, which simply means messenger. When you come across that, you need to figure that out. Is a heavenly messenger, including, is that even Jesus himself? The angel of the Lord. Every time you read the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that's an appearance of Christ before his incarnation because of the way he conducts himself. He receives worship. He speaks as God, not from God, but as God. So it's a messenger. And sometimes it's human messengers. When it says in Timothy, uh, he was seen by angels. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Why was Jesus seen by angels? Well, what's that got to do with it? He was seen by messengers. Ah, right. He was seen by the apostles and others who were then witnesses to his resurrection. Now that make, does make sense. That's what that verse means. All right? Because angel means messenger. You've got to decode it. What messenger is it? And our English Bibles didn't do that. Neither did they translate the word demon. It's the Greek word daemon. It means an evil spirit, a wicked spirit. All the angels of God were created good. They were in one sense sons or offsprings of God. It seems they were created at the beginning of creation because in Job we come across verses that says that when God made the world, the, uh, the stars, the morning stars and the sons of God sang together. And that's a reference to the angelic host. But sometime after the six days of creation and the seventh day of God's rest in his good creation, in which everything was good, nothing yet was wrong, Satan rebelled against the Most High. In the prophets we have some pictures of this as, as earthly rulers. Don't, don't worry, don't worry. We're soldiering on today, okay? Don't, do not fear. When earthly rulers pagan rulers in the time of Ezekiel and so on, are compared to Satan and his fall. His heart was lifted up. He was proud. I will be as God. Jewish tradition says that Satan rebelled when he learned the angels would serve man. Even though man was made a little lower, less powerful than the angels, nevertheless the angels would tell him, no, you're going to serve these people. Scripture certainly states that the angels of God are directed to serve God's children. So the rabbis may have a point about that. But scripture points to a third of the angelic host taking Satan's side. Now, as they say in America, do the math. They don't say maths, do they say math? Do the math. If a third rebelled, guess how many are still holy angels? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Two thirds. There are twice as many holy angels as fallen angels. All right? I don't know if you find that even vaguely encouraging, but it's good news in some way. Yes, it is. And there was briefly war in heaven, it's pictured in Revelation. Michael and the angels, the holy angels, evicted throughout Satan and the rebels. There is no continuing war in the presence of God the Most High. His throne is unassailed and unassailable. I want to make that statement because when we look next week at the heavenlies, we've got to straighten some things out about what does and doesn't happen in the highest heaven. At the start of Job, the sons of God gathered to give account to the Lord and Satan appears with them to give account. 
His role as accuser, tempter, adversary is already very clear. Yet God holds him to account. And note this, we haven't got time to go back to Job 1 and 2. He limits what Satan can do. Satan can only begin to attack Job with God's permission. The devil cannot do whatever he wants and wishes. When we speak of the devil, let's just say that's a bit, sometimes that's a shorthand. We mean both the devil and all the demons. The devil is not personally active and responsible in everything that happens. There's a considerable army of devils and demons are at work. We tend to use Satan or the devil, meaning all of them. Let's think about the character. Uh, listen, I, I've, I'm kind of motoring through. I'm giving you some scriptures if you want to look them up, a few footnotes, but um, I'm just kind of giving you a brief overall picture here. Let me say this. I never expect you to take on board what I say simply because I say it. Be a noble person who searches the scriptures. And if you're not clear about something, search the scriptures. And if you need to ask me something, ask me something, and I'll give you some more material. But do not accept it just because I say it, even if I say it falsely, all right? Thank you. The character of the devil. Some of this comes from the words of Jesus himself. The devil is a liar from the beginning. Utterly deceived. He'll use scripture, but he always twists it. He's a reader of the Bible, not a reader. He takes a verse and twists it to how he, what he wants it to say. Utterly deceitful, utterly wicked, implacably opposed and hateful towards God and God's children. No wrong is too wrong. Nothing is too wicked. Because the devil is utterly wicked. Now, human beings can mixture, but the devil is utterly wicked. There is no mixture in him. From 100% through his being, and he hasn't got a physical being, he's a spirit, but 100% of him is wicked. We would say as a human being from the tip of his head to the tip of his toes. Then he and evil spirits are foul, foul, dirty, unclean. And word is translated in different ways in different Bibles, but you get the idea of dirt. And one of the things that Satan most wants to do is to take a human being, which we were made in the image of God, and make us as degraded and as dirty as he can. Until we do things which we used to think were disgusting and unnatural, but we accommodate. the devil's business, to degrade us. He hates us. Why? Because he was made a servant of God, but we were made to be the children of God and bear his image. Hallelujah. Move on. The activity of the, de- of the devil and demonic powers, evil spirits. First of all, deception. Deception. I've got a few more quotes from good old William Gurnall. All right. Gurnall, Satan is not particular what lie he tells you. One will work as powerfully as another one if he can get you to believe it. Any lie will do so long as it's not the truth, in other words. Deception. He deceives. There's trickery in this. You know, you're only deceived because you were deceived. (laughs) And once you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived because you're still deceived. Part of my business as a preacher and teacher is is to help to unlock things that have got stuck thinking a certain way. 
We looked at it before in, 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 in Corinthians. Breaking down strongholds. The strongholds aren't up there somewhere. They're in here. Because we've been, fought, we've been taught to think in a certain way. And it's wrong. It's not according to God's truth. So, here's a nice little phrase for you. Satan's target is your mind. His weapon is lies. And your defense is God's word. To answer back with truth. Colonel again, never forget that the simple truth of the gospel reduces all the intricacies, the tricks of Satan to a worthless heap of lies. Just answer with the gospel. You've done it much, but if you know the gospel, Christ died for your sins and rose again on the third day for your justification. He's now alive and lives with God and lives in you by the Holy Spirit. That's enough of a sermon to send the devil back in. The devil impersonates is the imposter. Satan appears even as an angel of light. Paul's here talking about false apostles, deceitful workers, and he says they disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. Some of them get on our tellies. And no wonder, for Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Oh, why? An angel came and spoke to me, or the Virgin Mary came and spoke. Oh, really? Oh, really? Don't you know that's his business? Don't you know that's what the devil does? He doesn't turn up smelling like sulfur with horns and fire coming out of bits of him. He appears like an angel of light. So it is no great thing if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their destiny will be according to their works. He's also responsible for false miracles and signs and wonders we read in 2 Thessalonians. He fakes the real thing. But there's always a twist in it. So I'm not impressed when someone tells me that an angel spoke to them. I want to know whether that was an angel of God or someone pretending to be an angel of God. Prophets. Are you reading through Jeremiah with me in the Bible reading notes? And the Lord says through Jeremiah about the false prophets. They're prophesying, but I didn't send them. They can have a dream if they want to, but that wasn't what I told them. There's false prophesying that happens today. We've got to test these things. The devil is the accuser. Oh, that's a picture, isn't it? It, I put the words underneath it, but I thought that's a good picture. He's the accuser of the saints. You saw it in Job. You read it in Revelation. Now, he would waste his time trying to do a Job on us because Jesus stands at the right hand of God and defends us. I don't think the devil's going to go up against Jesus when it comes to kind of making his statements in court. The court in which Satan brings his accusations is in here and in here. It's in the court of your mind and in your heart that you get the accusation. Oh, you didn't do so and so, did you? Oh, look at you. Aren't you doing well today? Oh, you think, you think God's pleased with that? Oh, look, my, my, my. Accusation. Condemnation. Huh. You know, that was, that was pretty bad. I mean, you know, condemnation. What does God think about that? The Holy Spirit will, often, will sometimes convict us that we're doing something wrong. But he'll correct us to get it right. He'll give us grace. But the devil will shove your face in the dirt and grind it down. And leave you there. 
All he wants to do is condemn you. Damn. Brother Gurnall for you. Satan will not rest until he can hand in a verdict of guilty against your soul. When we know we have done wrong, guess what we do? We come to the throne of mercy and of grace. We confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We run back to a father who loves us and gave his son for us. Another one of his weapons is fear. Fear. Jesus told us not to fear men or devils, but only God. Don't fear him who can destroy your body, whether that's a man or, or the devil, who isn't either. But fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. That's not the devil, that's God. Fear God. In fact, other scriptures talk about the Lord is our fear. In the same way he talks about him being our strength and our rock, he is our fear. There's only one person our heart should stop with awe to consider. That's the Lord. Here's another good one. This is where they all stop in a minute. If you would argue less with Satan and pray more to God about your fears, they'd soon be resolved. Or I would even say, trying to rationalize them. Just bring them to the Lord. Casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Deal with your fears with your anxieties by delivering them to the throne of grace. Putting them out there before the Lord. The devil operates through chaos, division, confusion. He's the Lord of chaos. Um, tries to do it in your own heart. Tries to do it in the church. He tries to do it in the societies. To set people against one another. To divide. To divide. And then, through influence, control. Sometimes demonization, that demons gain control of a person to some degree or to a large degree. And by the way, demonization is not all or nothing. There are degrees of satanic influence, demonic influence that people can be, oppression that people can be under. Satan entered Judas but sifted Peter. There's a difference there. Satan put it into the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira to lie against the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean they were demonized, but they'd been influenced, they'd been controlled. It's interesting that it seems to me that one of the reasons that Satan fell was, you know, he was pride. He wanted to be as God. He wanted men, in other words, to serve him. And guess what? For quite a lot of humanity, for quite a long time, he's got that. Unbelieving people, whether they think about it, whether they'd like to accept it or not, are serving Satan. They're under his kingdom. Just to summarize this here, Paul says, we have, I've said all this so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan. We're not ignorant of his schemes. You might need to look at those again and think, those are his schemes. Is there anywhere in my life where I'm, I'm being taken in by these things? By darkness masquerading as light, by, by, by influence or control, by fear. Do I allow fear to rule me in some part of my life when God is to be my fear and not something else? All right? Let's talk about the destiny of the devil, the demonic powers. We have it from the way named the words of Jesus. Matthew 25. Then he, uh, 
the Lord of the judgment day will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There is an eternal fire. Jesus called it Gehenna. It's, that's the illustration of the rubbish dump outside Jerusalem where the fire never went out and the, the worms always had plenty to eat. An eternal fire that consumes and yet does not destroy. Which was prepared, Jesus said it, for the devil and his angels. His messengers. The sadly unbelieving people will share that same destiny. When Jesus was casting out the demons from the man in, in, in the Gadarenes, they cried out, has he come to judge us before our time? To send us to the abyss before our time? They were scared, those demons, that Jesus was going to send them to hell, this, that hell there, before their time. Because, hey, you know, what did they know about God's plans and timings and all this? Jesus sent them into some pigs instead and they drowned in the ocean. They knew Jesus had authority to send them to prison, darkness, or to that eternal fire. Revelation 20.10 pictures that at the end of the age, when the devil is thrown into a lake of fire and his co-workers with him. So what I want to stand about is telling us is we are wrestling against both human and demonic authorities, but that doesn't mean we can just cast them down and put something else in their place. Because the authorities, Romans 12 tells us, are permitted to rule by God. He allows them to do it. He holds them accountable for it. Satan is called a prince or ruler. Jesus referred to the devil as the ruler of this world. John 12, verse 31. John 14, verse 30. John 16, verse 11. The ruler of this world. And when Jesus died on the cross, the ruler of this world was judged. That's what Jesus said. I'm I'm going, and he talks about, I'm going to do this, and this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And those were all accomplished through the cross and his resurrection. And Jesus judged the powers of darkness on the cross. Colossians tells us that he overcame them and put them to public shame at the cross. I mentioned it the other week. But Satan still is, predominantly, let's say, for a large part of humanity, the ruler of this world. Paul writes that Satan is the prince or ruler, literally, of the air. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, of the air in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens. That's the Holman Christian Standard Bible explaining that. It's literally who has rule in or over the air, the atmosphere of planet Earth. He's not just confined to walking around on the Earth. He can move around. His dominion extends further than territorial boundaries like, you know, oh, there's an ocean there. You can't, you can't go any further, can you? No. He's a spirit, therefore he can move around the planet in the air. The spirit now working in the disobedient. I want to talk about the way some people picture spiritual warfare as, you know, driving demons down, bringing, casting down strongholds. And I've explained that to you. That's nothing about the devil. Many people go to Daniel 10. And what they see there is an example of spiritual warfare, or even it's called strategic level spiritual warfare. S-L-S-W, strategic level, going up into heavenly places and throwing down the demons. Number one, that already happened. 
Number two, let's look at this. Let's look at what's actually recorded in Daniel 10. Now, I haven't, I haven't got time to give you all the scriptures and go through verse by verse. Let me just give you a summary. Please check it out. Daniel lived under the rule of a Persian emperor called Xerxes. He was the emperor that uh, Esther had to marry. The Persian Empire was the predominant political and military force of that time. They'd taken over from the Assyrians, they'd taken over from the Babylonians, they were now the, 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 the kings of, of, the, of Middle Asia, of the Middle East. And Daniel was serving that emperor. And Daniel was praying. And a holy angel, a heavenly messenger was sent to him. But they, when the angel came, he said why he'd been delayed. The prince of Persia had opposed and obstructed him for 21 days, for three weeks. And Michael, a chief angel, came to the first angel's aid. And so they overcame the obstruction and the angel came to Daniel. Now the prince of Persia mentioned there was not Xerxes, the emperor himself, but a dynamic power behind the throne of the Persian empire. That demonic power was not overthrown or cast down by that conflict. His obstruction was overcome. Because the angel goes right straight on to tell Daniel that he's got to return to fight against the prince of Persia again, and then the prince of Greece will come. In other words, the Persian Empire will fall and the Greeks will take over, which is exactly what happened under Alexander the Great. But the gap between Daniel receiving that word and Alexander defeating the Persians was 150 years. That's a long battle going on, folks. There are things happening in terms of angelic and demonic battles which we know nothing about and take centuries. That's what that verse is telling us. It wasn't, we'll pray him down. Whoa, done. In 150 years. Daniel wasn't praying for it to happen even. He only knew when it had finished. So the powers of earth are motivated by evil powers. The prince of Persia was not cast down in Daniel's time or as a result of his prayers directly. But the prince of Persia, that demonic power's resistance to Daniel receiving help from heaven was overcome by additional angelic authority as Daniel continued to pray. But the authority resisted angelic authority for some time until it was overcome. If the Lord permits demonic authority, some dominion in the earth, and it seems from scripture he does, that order will not be overthrown until Jesus returns, until the end of this age. We do not dethrone or destroy demons. That battle is the Lord's, not ours. Where would they go and what would they do if, they moved, if we shifted them out from one place? Would they go to another one? We demolish strongholds that, seek, that they seek to build in human hearts and human societies. We pray and work for the advance of the kingdom of Jesus. We struggle not against flesh and blood, but against human and demonic authorities. We need to understand our time, our place in God's scheme of things, from the beginning to the end. Though Adam ceded authority to Satan in the Garden of Eden, two key battles have already been won. Satan and his band of rebel angels have been evicted from heaven and cast down to the earth. Then on the cross, well before the cross, Jesus defeated Satan in life and in his death on the cross. And we now live after those two have already been accomplished. The final battle is not ours, it is the Lord's. 
He will be, he, Jesus will be revealed from heaven with fiery vengeance destroying his enemies, including sin, death, and the devil, and all of his angels. That battle will end, and it's not much of a battle really, Jesus just rides and conquers. It will end in the imprisonment of the devil and demons in a fiery, everlasting hell. That's not yet, it's at the end of this age. So some people go around overstating our present battle. We do not get to fight the final battle. It's not ours. It's the Lord's. But we have obstacles that need to be overcome. Paul even mentions, again in our daily readings, Thessalonians, Paul mentions, we, I set out to go to so-and-so place, but the, Satan hindered us, or hindered his friend. There are times, my friends, when in God's sovereignty somehow Satan was allowed to hinder Paul and his friends from going to certain places. The early church is not just a, lived in not just a godless society, it lived in what was a profoundly pagan, superstitious, idolatrous society where actually witchcraft and, 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 and black magic were rife. And yet in that culture, in that climate... They preached the gospel, planted churches, made disciples, lived upright lives in the middle of towns and cities. Some of those were seats of false religion and demonic activity. You should read the, 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 uh, the seven letters that Jesus writes to the churches at the beginning of Revelation. One, two of them, he says, there's a synagogue of Satan there. And another one, he says, you, you live where the, where the throne of Satan is. There was a temple there called the throne of Satan. You know? What would we, how would we react? Oh, we've got to do something about that. We've got to... You do not find anywhere in the New Testament any instructions about casting down, throwing down, overthrowing these things. They just got on with the job of the kingdom. And those things had to stumble and fall as the kingdom advanced. You do not find casting and binding or overthrowing set out in the epistles. Think of Acts chapter 4. The apostles have been imprisoned. Uh, they're warned not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus and, and they, 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 they come back to their friends who are praying in, in a room in Acts chapter 4. And the disciples pray this extraordinary prayer and I should have included my notes because I do have time for that. You can please read it, Acts chapter 4. Did the disciples pray that the human authorities, including Herod and so on, the Romans who were persecuting the church, be overthrown? Lord, cast them down! Break their heads, O God! They didn't. There's not one word of that in that mighty prayer. What they do is they submit their case to the Lord. Lord, you see their threats. Here's, you know, like Hezekiah with the open letter. Here they are, Lord, we lay them before you. You deal with that. But give us your authority to keep on preaching the gospel. And please, Lord, extend your hand to the great signs and wonders we've done to the name and to the honor of your Holy Son, Jesus. You deal with that, Lord, but give us your authority to get on with the job. They didn't pray against the authorities. No. It's not there. And yet that is how most people, a lot of people, I should say now, they think that's the way we do warfare. We're going to attack that one and pray against that one. and pray. When we come to prayer, all right, when we come to prayer, let me say it now as a headline you find very, very few prayer scriptures that pray against anything. They pray for. This is not about clearing the way and 
It's all nice now so Jesus can come. No, we push through so Jesus is coming behind us. We pray for advance. The one bit in the pattern prayer that deals with these issues is what? Don't lead us into temptation. But deliver us from, many versions have, because the Greek can be both ways, the evil one. Don't lead us into trial, Lord, but But where does the prayer start? Lord, your name, your kingdom, your will. Let them increase, let them come on earth as they are in heaven. It's about kingdom advance, about Jesus being more honored, more glorified. We're not not trying to stomp on demons in the pattern prayer that Jesus taught us. The power of the enemy didn't stop the church empowered by the Holy Spirit. They lived by faith. They prayed. They worked. They declared the good news. The kingdom of Jesus expanded and filled that pagan world. There was opposition and there were obstacles, but they just kept on going. A few more things I need to say about these things. The devil is not deity. People think about the kind of, you know, the yin and yang sign, the white kind of question mark and the black question mark, and they wrap into one another. And some, one of the heresies that got into the early church was that there was a, there was a good God and a bad God, and they were just going to fight it out until somehow it all sorted out in the long term. The devil is not God. He's a false God and promotes false gods, but he has no attributes of Godhead. I could have put these on the screen, but I didn't. He is not omniscient. He does not know everything, though he has a very, very good intelligence service. You know, a host of fallen angels who communicate in ways that we won't barely understand, but he is not omniscient, but he can figure things out. He's wise, he's clever, but he's not God. He's not omnipotent. He does not all... He is not the devil almighty. Only God is God almighty. He cannot do anything and everything. He's not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere. He's not eternal. He has an end. He's a created being. He had a beginning and he will have an end. Gurnall says, Satan has never been nor will ever be a worthy opponent of God almighty. I wrote very quickly last night, going to bed, these thoughts. The devil is outmatched by the strength of God. Even before you talk about the maths with the angels. The devil is outmatched by the strength of our God. He is outmaneuvered by the wisdom and grace of our God. And he will soon be overtaken by the justice and vengeance of our God. Therefore, the Bible says, Resist the devil. I'm going to talk about whether we rebuke or not in a minute. It says here, resist the devil. James 4, verse 6. God gives greater grace. You have to go back and read the rest. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud. This is an Old Testament quotation. But gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. You see, Satan's primal sin was pride. Don't, don't give a new convert responsibility in the church, lest he fall into Satan's sin of pride, Paul says to Timothy. So when we submit to God and we humble ourselves, guess what? We're denying the devil his chance to make us into his image. 
Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You don't just resist the devil. You submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I take authority. Well, no, you have authority when you're submitted to God. You speak on his name because you love his name and submit to his name. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Peter says a similar thing, 1 Peter 5 verse 8. Be serious. Be alert. Your average of the devil prowls around like a roaring lion trying to scare you, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him. Just that. What did Jesus do in the wilderness? Did he damn, judge Satan? He just said, no. Here's why. Scripture. He resisted. And be firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Jesus said to one of the churches, again in Revelation, the devil's going to throw some of you in prison, he's going to shop you for a period of time. He said, well, 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 hang on. We're not supposed to have that. Jesus said, that's going to happen. It's, it's been allowed. That your test, your faith may be tested. You'll come through like gold through a fire. Resist him and stand firm in the faith. Should we rebuke the devil? People like this stuff, don't they? We rebuke the world. Well, if you're directly confronting the work of the devil, a person who's demonized, controlled to larger or less, greater or lesser extent by evil powers. And by the way, that demonic influence needs to be discerned, not assumed. It's a gift of the Spirit that gives you discernment to know that this is an evil spirit and therefore you will deal with it as an evil spirit rather than this is a person who's messing up or just you know, mentally ill or something. You, know, and, you, know, you can deal with that appropriately. So we mustn't make assumptions any more than we must assume that all sickness is because of sin. It sometimes is, but it's not always the case. So we can't say to somebody, oh, you're, you're not well because you've done something wrong. No, 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 that's an assumption. That's an assumption and a wicked assumption. If we're confronted with the work of the enemy, we have authority from Jesus to deal with the work of the enemy. I'll tell you this instant. In the early years of Carol and my coming to join Rob and Sue and being involved here, uh, Rob and Sue were on a visit to America then, yet gone out to America full-time. They were on a visit to America. And, and during that time, I think, I think it was Christmas, and we had a Christmas event. Someone came in, sat about the third row, almost next to where Essie is there. And I went, discernment. Inside me, the fireworks were going off. I'm in a battle. Why am I in a battle? Because there's an evil spirit. That's how the Lord does it with me. I don't, it's a word. What's that? You know, and I, I can't. And this person's looking at me. and I won't, I won't go and explain it all to you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I thought, what do we do about this? What do we do about this? So I did what I've done before in an, in an earlier situation elsewhere. I walked over and I greeted everybody else and when they came to that person, I leaned over and said, if you misbehave yourself, I will drive you out. Sorry. <laughs> in the name of the Lord, I will drive you out. If you misbehave yourself, in the name of the Lord, I will, I will deal with you. That was it. Didn't have any trouble from them. Nothing happened. Right? You say, well, we should have done, should have done that. That's what I was felt, you know, 
was appropriate in that moment to do before we're about to start a Christmas meeting, whatever it was. Didn't need guns blasting, didn't need... Do you understand? Yeah. Jesus has given us authority to deal with the works of the devil wherever they occur. When it really is an evil spirit at work. But let's not assume that something is always a devil doing this or a devil doing that. Whenever you see that, that's the devil at work. Let's, that, that, is, that is a false presumption and it leads us into, into harming people. It really does. But if it's, a, if it's a demon at work, we'll deal with the demon. We cast out demons from a person if there's one that's there and it's real, it's not imaginary. But we don't engage in an argument with the devil that command them to leave on the Lord's authority. What about strongholds? I've already dealt with the scripture in 2 Corinthians 10 that speaks of strongholds. They're not in the heavens, they're in our hearts and they're, they're things about the way we think and the ideas and the philosophies that we've allowed been raised in even and we need to be, be released from. What about binding and loosing? In Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. I've previously spoken about that. Binding and loosing was an expression that the Jewish rabbis used when they ruled that something was lawful or unlawful or they excluded or received back someone into fellowship, into the community, into the synagogue. If you were, if you were bound, you were thrown, you know, like roped up and thrown out. That was it. That was it. You, you, were, you were bound, banned. You know, bound, bound as being like banned. You couldn't be part of the community anymore. Jesus speaks in those contexts to the church ruling together to bring discipline to someone that they are now excluded or they can be, re- they can be re-included. There's no mention of evil spirits at all in those contexts. And even when Jesus says, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That phrase, the gates of Hades, when you pursue it through the Old Testament, through all the references, because there's, there's a chain and a currency of the scriptures that things follow through... The gates of Hades mean the gates of death. Not the gates of the devil. The gates of death. Hades, Sheol, death. How were the gates of death broken? By the resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to build my church and even death isn't going to stop me. That's what the sense of that scripture is. I'm going to build my church and even death itself will not stop me. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Scripture gives us warnings, instructions, boundaries for how we are to deal with the devil. Now, let me show you these two scriptures. We are not to speak abusively to the devil. I remember when I went to Bible college, a long, long time ago, I won't tell you when, and uh, the first evening prayer meeting we had there, and one dear chap, he was from Sunderland, but he'd been in Canada for a while, he had a weird accent. He got up to pray, and all he did was talk to the devil for like 20 minutes, and I'm like, what? Did I just arrive in here? <coughs> I mean, you know, and name-calling and rebuking. and It troubled me. So I went away to search the scriptures, and this is what I found. Jude verse 8. Nevertheless, these dreamers likewise defile their flesh and reject authority and blaspheme glorious ones. Now, interestingly there, the glorious ones that he's about to mention are Demons. Because they are glorious, powerful beings. They are more powerful than human beings. But we have someone much more powerful than them. Yet Michael the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil in a debate about Moses' body, you'd like to look that up, but you can't. It's not recorded in the Old Testament. It isn't, it isn't there in Deuteronomy or Numbers. 
But here it is, Michael, the archangel, had a dispute with the devil about Moses' body. But Michael, the archangel, did not dare bring an abusive condemnation against him, against the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme what they, anything they don't understand. The Lord rebuke you. To Peter. To Peter and, and, and uh, James are very parallel letters. They may have come from the same council meeting of the early church with the same message. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. Now, God help me, I mustn't despise certain human authorities. But I do not believe we have any biblical mandate for being rude to the devil. Going around name-calling. Just, you know, having a nice little rant. I don't believe we have any authority to do that. Both of those scriptures depend upon this from Zechariah. Oh, sorry, there's another verse. But these people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, speak blasphemies about things they don't understand. Listen, we do not have all the clue, all the info on angels and demons. We get little snippets. We do not have a full picture. There are those people who want to investigate it and make, add it all up and put it all together. And do you know what? It's a diversion. It'll take, it, it, you know, there's also things you can get into and they take away from the gospel. Don't go there. In fact, Paul, Jesus says in... in um, uh, one of the letters to the church is Thyatira in, in Revelation. Uh, you know, some of you have pursued the deep things of Satan. Now, were they, were they becoming occultists, black magic people? No. They were investigating how you deal with Satan. And it's like, no, 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 no. Not necessary. Not necessary. They blaspheme things they don't understand. In Zechariah, here's the example. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. Now Joshua is the same as saying Jesus. So there's a high priest in the days of Zechariah who was called Jesus. Isn't that interesting? And the angel of the Lord. Now who's the angel of the Lord? I told you earlier. The angel, capital A of the Lord, the messenger of, the, of Yahweh, is actually a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus, of Christ. So here Christ, the Messiah, appears in this prophetic dream. And he's standing alongside Joshua, the high priest. But Satan is standing at his right side to accuse him. Of course he is. He's what he always does. He's accusing Joshua into Joshua's ear. The Lord said to Satan. Notice here, the angel of the Lord becomes just the Lord. The angel of the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this... A man, uh, this man a burning stick snatched from the fire. Interesting that the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. That's, the, that's all the Bible says about rebuking. It talks about resisting and standing, refusing, and pulling down the strongholds of thinking. But in terms of direct conflict with Satan, I don't think we do more than what Jesus did. Say, no, because the Bible says, because Jesus says. The victory and promise of Jesus. I, I wanted to go to this in Luke and show you this before we finish. 
Jesus had sent out the 70 to go and preach the gospel and to heal the sick and to cast out demons. I mean, he hasn't even gone to the cross yet, but they're doing it because he's releasing the kingdom to them, even though he hasn't, you know, in a sense, achieved it. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in God, guess what? Your name. But you've got to have his authority to do that, because in Acts there were those who were some Jewish young men who began to try and cast out demons, saying, we command you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the demons said, we know Paul, we know Jesus, we don't know you, and they beat them up. The demonized man or, man or people beat them up. <laughs> so you've got, to be, you've got to be standing in him to speak in his name. But the 70, Lord, we're excited. Even demon, you're right, demons submitted to us. And Jesus said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. Now that what didn't happen when they, just then. That happened a long time ago. But Jesus says, I saw that. I saw that. Look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Those two words are very similar. I have given you authority over all the authority of the enemy. You can undo whatever he does. You can deal with whatever he's doing. Nothing will ever harm you. Maybe you need to underline that one. Nothing will ever harm you. That's the promise of Jesus because he has secured the victory. However, don't rejoice that the Spirit submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The big deal is you're a child of God going to be with your father one day through his dear son Jesus. So dealing with a few demons along the way is not a big deal, folks. It doesn't need, doesn't need to be bigged up at all. The bigger deal is you're a Christian. Blood-bought. Sealed to God by the Holy Spirit. I'll start again next time by explaining what the scripture means by wrestling. I'll also show you next time what the heavenly places are. And again, the talk of going up into the high places and casting down is to misunderstand scripture. To be clear, what's been called strategic level, level spiritual warfare is not what the Bible teaches us at all. The battleground is not in the heaven of heavens, it's here. Here's a headline for next time. There's a big difference between the war zone and the war room. So I don't, I don't, is anybody clicking with that one? You're running ahead of me? Otherwise I'll just leave it there. You can, you can mull that, that around for the next week. There's a big difference between the war zone, where the battle is happening, and the war room, where the decisions are being made. You may ask, if the battle's not in the heavens, where is it? Well, it's firstly here in us, the battle for our minds, the fight of faith. We must battle for soundness of mind, to think and therefore live and act according to God's truth, firstly in ourselves and then helping others. Then we are in a battle with the world around us. We are bombarded every day by false philosophies, values, corrupting images and influences, consumerism, secularism, scientism, all of these things. We're called to resist and reject godless philosophies. Then underlying all of that, as we resist the flesh and the world, we begin to resist the work of the enemy who led Adam and Eve into rebellion and sin against the Most High. And he is our adversary and our accuser. But again and again... Three times in this passage of scripture, what does it say? Stand. Stand. Doesn't, like I said last week, it doesn't even say fight, it says stand. 
We have an enemy who's powerful, deceitful, evil, but he's already defeated. His final outcome is without doubt. Our Lord Jesus has defeated all our enemies and reigns far above such things, yet he prays for our help and our preservation. He's the captain of our salvation. Here's a nice little quote from Gurnall. Rest easy, worried Christian. The duel is not between the church and Satan, but between Christ and Satan. One of the lessons the children of Israel had to learn, and later under Joshua, and then under Gideon, and then under David, the armies of Israel had to learn, was this. The battle was never really theirs. It was always the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. Therefore, we stand in his victory. We're not trying to win one for ourselves. We stand firm in the Lord's strength against the evil one. We resist his work and refute the lies. We stand also against the unbridled appetites of the flesh. We need to be disciplined in how we handle our desires. And the godless philosophies and values of the world, as well as the works of the devil. We do not shout for our victory, but for the Lord's victory. There's the old Moravian seal. Our Lamb has conquered. Amen. Let us follow him. We cannot overstate the victory and the kingdom and the authority of our Lord Jesus. You cannot overstate it. No matter how many words you put together, you've hardly begun to say how big and how important and how great it is. The whole of Revelation is not all the nasty things that can happen at the end of the age. It's the victory of God being spelled out here and here and here and here. And that victory is already secure, already accomplished. Why? Because Jesus did not hold on to his life, but laid it down for us. And in so doing, defeated all the powers of darkness and sin and death. And to prove and demonstrate that that was the case, he rose from the dead on the third day. Death, it was impossible for death to hold him. The gates of death were nothing for Jesus. He burst them open. So again and again we sing his victory, we proclaim his victory. And when we feel like we're in a conflict, we're in a battle, we need to know what the old guys knew in the Old Testament. If we're wise, we say to ourselves, I'm in a conflict right now, but you know what, it's not really my battle. The battle is the Lord's. I will stand firm in him and resist and survive. I'll live to another day, for the Lord is my helper. Amen? Amen. All right. We're going to break bread together before... Uh